If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Willerskin booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Back from a week's rest and full of PNV. Here's Scott Thompson. Good afternoon. It's Hamilton today. Uh, back from holidays. Great to be here. Uh, off for a week. Had great weather. Uh, it was. Uh, it, it was. It was a great time. And um, and and the here. Here's the thing, though. So we're up at the cottage. So the kids are up for like uh, my two teenagers. Well, I guess one's not a teenager. Anymore. But anyway, um, so uh, we're up there for the long weekend and it's like, <laughs> you know, it's like uh, it's New Year's Eve. <laughs> you know, it's 1999 uh, and, you know, lots going on, lots of action, lots of whatever. And then like on the Tuesday, they went home because they got like jobs and stuff. Which I'm very proud of, I might say, and like they got a commitment. So. Uh, anyway, so for the rest of the week, my wife and I were just there by myself, by ourselves. Sometimes it felt like I was by myself. No, I'm kidding. Hang a sec. She hit the door. So, uh, so anyway, what an unusual, um, holiday for us. And I know there's lots of people out there. The kids are grown and, you know, it airs a little, a little later in life and such. But, you know, and they talk about when, uh, all of a sudden, and, and I, I think I just noticed it when I was on holiday that all of a sudden it's like, well, where did everybody go? And, 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 and like, because it's, you know, the family gets together, the family stays the whole holiday. They don't stay for part of it and then go home. But obviously now with, uh, you know, future commitment and, and they're getting old and, and, and I'm not sure they want to hang around with mom and dad for the whole time. Uh, anyway, so, uh, so yeah, so the whole latter part of it was just my wife and I. Um, and then, you know, once we, we, uh, 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 no, I don't even think I'm going to go there. Uh, so anyway, it turned out to be just a, a very restful and I'm thinking back, like, what did we do? Nothing, <laughs> really nothing, nothing at all. It just kind of hung out and, and the weather was, uh, was great. So it was, yeah, yeah. It, you know, same old, same old. So, uh, but I, I think the biggest shock is like, and I'm thinking, well, what did I take from this? What did I, what was the standout? What was the activity? What was the situation? What was the most fun? And, and I don't think there was anything like that because there's like years of that stuff. Uh, you know, I think what it was is like realizing you're getting older, your kids are getting older, and uh, the family vacation has changed a tremendous amount just in the last year alone and especially over COVID. But anyway, uh, fun all around, so uh, uh, great to have time off. And, you know, you, retor- you return and then you get back into the hell. You know, has a public inquiry been called? I'll take that as a no. Uh, Bernardo back in maximum security prison? No, no, it's not. Affordability, housing, anything? No. There you go. On the buzzer, uh, Major Tom. So really nothing's changed, but, um, but you know, uh, lots of rest and relaxation for the last seven days. Hope you get a chance to do the same because, uh, man, it's been some, um, you know, some interesting weather, some nice weather, we'll say. Uh, you know, in and amongst the smoke and stuff, but what the heck. We have talked about this issue many, many times, and I, I guess it all came to light way back when when the parliamentary budget officer 
uh, said that the cost of the public civil service has gone up 31% just in the time that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has been in power. Uh, an investigative journalist working with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation has discovered the feds have hired more than 98,000 employees since the Prime Minister came to power. Uh, that uh, includes an extra 21,290 over the last year alone. And if you've been trying to get a passport for the last year, you're thinking, well, they ain't there. So it has, has your services, has, has the performance uh, increased 31%? Let's bring in Franco Terrazano, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director, and with us now. Franco, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, thanks for having me on. So before we get to all of the breakdown of this, Franco, simple question. Why? Why is this federal government hiring so many employees? It's not as if, uh, I don't know, is there, a, is there a shortage of workers? Is stuff not getting done? I don't get it. Well, yeah, I mean, stuff's not getting done. As you mentioned, if you're trying to get your passport this fall, you knew that right off the bat. But they've been hiring like these tens of thousands of bureaucrats and things aren't getting better. They've handed out hundreds of thousands of pay raises over the last couple of years. Things aren't getting better. They've given out hundreds of millions of dollars in bonuses over the last couple year years. Things aren't getting better, right? All we're seeing is more taxes and more regulation. And look, if, if you're looking at your tax bill, right, and, and you're like, man, I'm paying way too much tax. Well, one of the reasons you're doing that is because of the bureaucracy, okay? Because half of the operating spending, more than half of the operating spending, more than half of the government's day-to-day costs is in the bureaucracy, so no wonder our tax bills are going through the roof when you find out that the federal government just hired 98,000 additional bureaucrats uh, since Trudeau came to power. Um, the other side of this, I'm playing devil's advocate again, Franco. Yep. Uh, what about those that have left? Some said the conservatives cut a lot of federal employees. Now we're just hiring them all back. But again, it's not like we've seen an improvement in services. Who is leaving? Is anyone leaving to create these gaps? Well, also that 98,000 is, is net, right? So that even assumes that people have left and they've hired 98,000 extra. Um, now, the Harper government did start to rein in the size of the government. It did start is the key word. Um, but even if you look at where the Harper government was near the end of its administration, I mean, you've still seen the number of bureaucrats uh, go through the roof. Now, let me play even more devil's advocate to myself and let me refute that. What I'm sure people are saying, well, what about the pandemic? Okay. Well, let's remember that the federal bureaucracy isn't nurses and doctors, right? For the most part, that is uh, done provincially. But also, too, even if somebody wanted to make the argument that this was for the pandemic, well, then why did we hire an extra 21,000 over the last year? Over the last year, we've hired an Mm. extra 21,000. And let's not forget that the CRA itself has said that it's not fully investigating the tens of billions of dollars in an eligible subsidies that went out the door so the question is what are we getting for all these bureaucrats what are these jobs that are available should we be applying franco (laughs) don't give anyone any thoughts uh (laughs) you know we didn't get a breakdown from the treasury board we just got these high level numbers um but but hold on a second right like let me let me just give give your listeners a a couple more interesting facts like ninety eight thousand since the trudeau government took power twenty one thousand extra bureaucrats over the last year Now, not only are we paying for more bureaucrats, but we're paying for bigger salaries of these more bureaucrats because over the last three years, right, uh, many hardships 
in the private sector, you may have lost your job during the pandemic. You may have taken a cut. Uh, maybe you owned a small business and you had to take out a line of credit to keep the lights on. Uh, or maybe, you know, like most Canadians, you're just struggling to put ground beef on the table. Well, 800,000 pay raises have been given out between 2020 and 2022. Now, that means that many bureaucrats receive not one pay raise during the pandemic years, but two. Okay, on top of the pay raises, you also have $1.3 billion in bonuses handed out over the last, oh, since 2015. 90% of government executives are getting bonuses every year. And last year's average bonus for one of those government executives, 18,000 smackers. Um, you know, we've seen a lot of situations where the ministers are just completely disconnected with the staff, the staff completely disconnected with any of the organizations or institutions. We've seen this with a prime minister not going, knowing on what's going on with CSIS. We've seen with the safety minister in the Bernardo situation. And there's been a lot of drop balls lately where the staff just don't seem to know what's going on. Are there too many? Does the left hand not know what the right hand is doing? Because you'd think with all of this extra staff, these ministers would be on top of all of this stuff. Well, well, hold on a second, right? Because you have political staff and you have the bureaucrat staff, right? There's two separate things. You have the political side yeah, and you have right, the yeah. government side. Now, let me just venture a guess. I think the political side, <laughs> to your point, it seems like some days they don't know what's going on. But in the government side, I think they do know what's going on. I think they're they, I think they're very happy to hire more bureaucrats on the government side to give everyone more pay raises, to give each other more bonuses. I think they're happy to do that. And they're getting away with it because the political side seems to not either not know what's going on or not care that this is going on. And I'm not sure which is worse. But either way, all of this is happening and who gets to foot the bill? You, dear taxpayer, you're paying the bill. And this really matters because people are struggling and as I said right off the top when you talk about the cost of the bureaucracy, it's about half of the government's day-to-day -day spending. So if we want to rein in taxes, we have to rein in the biggest item on the budget of the day-to-day -day spending of the government. What, is there a, a political advantage to hiring more federal employees? Does it benefit the party? <laughs> well, I don't, I don't think it... Well, here's the thing. Let's put that in the reverse. I think that if you're going to say you're going to uh, lay off bureaucrats, I think there's negative in the politics there, right? Because then you have to go up against the union and which political party is willing mm. to go up against the union. Well, we just had a case study. Remember the PSAC strike? I don't remember a single party in the house of commons that was really pushing back against it. Even the conservatives who tend to be, they, they try to portray themselves as a champion of taxpayers. And a lot of days they say a lot of the right things, but when the PSAC strike was happening, I don't remember a single conservative member of parliament uh, pushing back against some of the outrageous demands, like them wanting more money to work past 4 p.m. All right, there you have it. Uh, journalists working with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, 98,000 new employees since the Prime Minister took office. Franco Terrazano with his Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director. Keep at it, Franco. Uh, we'll chat soon. Be well. Thanks. Have a great day. Let's find out what's going on in racing since, you know, I've been off for a week. And, um, you know, what, what better thing to talk about when we start the show off in a new week, other than, of course, uh, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. That's going to put your head in a spin. Now we got to relax, put the feet up, and talk a little racing. With Eric Thomas, Raceline Radio Network, you hear him every Sunday night right here on CHML. He is with us now. Reason being, Toronto IndyCar action this weekend. Eric here now. Eric, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. We're doing well, Scooter. Hope you're well at your end as well. 
Yeah, so far so good. Give us a bit of history here of this race, uh, what it entails to those that may not be following it the way you and I are. Yeah, it's the IndyCar Series, and this will be the 35th running of this race around mm. the C&E Exhibition Place in Toronto that was, well, first talked about way back in the late 60s when there was, uh, well, a half-hearted attempt to try and bring Formula One to the city of Toronto on a track that involved the Lakeshore, which the, one, the current track does, and also through the old Exhibition Stadium and then back out again. That never did catch on until... Well, let's put it this way, the, the mid-80s the mid or the early 80s when the promoters got together and, and some, some local folks got together and said, you know, I think we can do an IndyCar race. And, of course, the, the idea being that the heroes of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and the IndyCar of, of aggregation would bring their heroes and their cars to the streets of Toronto. And the novelty of that being that you bring the race to the city rather than have everybody from the city head out yeah. to a racetrack out in the country somewhere and do it in reverse and have the street course. Well, they ran the first one in 1986. It was won by Bobby Rahal. I had the good fortune of, because of my announcing uh, history at Merrittville Speedway and Ransomville and a few others at Cayuga Speedway as well, that I sort of uh, got a hold of those guys and said, look, I want to be involved in the PA uh, call of this thing. And so the 1986 race was the start of it. I was on the PA co-call with uh, with uh, Jim Paulson for uh, the years up until Raceline Radio was born in 92, and then we, we covered the thing trackside uh, through the, uh, the the two years of COVID and the one year that it went dark because of the IRL and IndyCar getting back together again. So it's still that novelty. It's still that idea that the people that we see racing the Indianapolis 500 and the Indy Motor Speedway, and, of course, the rest of the series races as well, now come to Toronto for one weekend of summer and is now, after runs in Montreal and Vancouver and even in Edmonton, it's the lone stop for the IndyCar series in Canada. So that's kind of a, you know, the, the, the one big winner in all of it, of course, is Michael Andretti, who was a seven-time winner of this race in Toronto, went back-to-back with wins three times. Of course, one of his drivers now, Devlin De Francesco, the kid from Toronto, uh, is involved in the, in the series now. So there's just a bit, bit of a brief history. You could go on and on about it. But that, that's how it mostly started. We were there uh, in city council in Toronto when they brought Danny Sullivan in to try and sell this idea of running mm. a street race in Toronto. And I live right next to the, to the C&E when, when this was all proposed. And we, sit, we, we listened to everybody talk about, oh, it's going to be too loud, oh, it's going to be too noisy, oh, it's going to be too dirty, there's no parking, blah, blah, blah. Well, then Danny Sullivan got up, and it was his turn to sort of tell everybody why it was a good idea and why it wasn't polluting, because the IndyCars burn alcohol, and that's non-polluting. He started into his dissertation about why the race scooter was so good and he started to get heckled by the people who live next to the racetrack, which did not include me. I was mortified when they started. He turned around and literally said, now y'all, he's from Kentucky, now y'all shut up. I listened to you, and now this is part of the history that I lived it. He said, y'all shut up. I listened to you, didn't say anything. Now I'm going to tell you why what you're saying is a bunch of baloney. And he got through his dissertation. I thought, way to go, Danny. Former Indy 500 winner, right? Spin and win in 85. And he gets up, tells all these these idiots who don't know what they're talking about to shut up, counsel, uh, article, and passed it right away. And it's been part of the culture and of racing and sport uh, in the GTA and uh, Southern Ontario for the for the longest time since 1986. I know that's a terribly long, drawn-out answer, but that kind of gives you an idea how this thing got started. Is Indy feeling the same love that F1 seems to be feeling now? 
getting it back, uh, put it this way, there used to be a huge, they used to be on top, and, and NASCAR used to yeah. be secondary. Of course, that swung around many years ago. NASCAR seems to be slipping. IndyCar um, is starting to come back again because the competition is so good and the racing is so good uh, and getting a few more, eh, a little more vibrant personalities. But is it getting as much worldwide attention? No, certainly not for F1, but F1 is still going to be the king of all of that stuff in the, in the Netflix series and everything else like that. But IndyCar has always been very, very big, and, and it's, it's considered a crown jewel. I was just talking to, to, uh, to Mark Jaynes, the IndyCar radio network guy, uh, the, the anchor, and we, you heard him on, on, the, on the show here on, on CHML last night is the fact that this is considered one of the crown jewel events on the schedule. They love coming to Toronto. They love coming to Canada because the fans are so enthusiastic and they're so knowledgeable. They know who the Andrettis are. They know who Roger Penske and those drivers are. And when you think that we've got, we've got uh, uh, all kinds of drivers that are currently in this series other multi-time winners of this event. Scott Dixon with Chip Ganassi is a five-time winner. Will Powers won three. Joseph Newgarden with Penske's won a pair. Simon Pagino, Ryan Hunter-Ray with singles. Paul Tracy, of course, back in those days, the only Canadian to win this race, 93 in 2003. And here's something else. You want to know about the enthusiasm of this race? Paul tells us vividly, when he won that first race in 1993, he's got a helmet on, he's got radio earpieces in, balaclava on, helmet on, visor down, engine growling in behind his head. He says, when I'm coming around for the last couple of laps to win this race, not only can I see the fans jumping up and down, I can hear them in my mm. own ears over all that stuff mm. and the engine in behind him. He could hear the, the, the fans' enthusiasm and see it as well. So th- it's a big deal, man. It's a big deal. Yeah. I know it's, it's waned a little bit. The attendance is coming back. They had record attendance last year after COVID, which was really good. The ticket sales, they're telling me right now, are very, very brisk and even better than last year. So I'm expecting, because we've got a, a full field now, they're going to have trouble getting all these teams <laughs> along pit mm. road. There's you know, 24 to 27 cars. So what, it, you know, I, I think the swing has come back, Scott. I really do. What about the interchange of drivers between all of these different disciplines? We saw uh, a NASCAR race in Chicago, in the streets of Chicago a, a week or so ago, and a, and a, a New Zealander won, and yeah, won yeah. very well, I might add, <laughs> and, 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 and spanked them. them. Yeah, and, and you know, like, it'd be cool if we could start to see that through all disciplines. I mean, is you know, that coming back in any way? I, th- I think it is. It's not as prevalent as it used to be in the days of you know, Mario Andretti and A.J. Foyt, where they would go and do a NASCAR race and an IndyCar race and then do something on the dirt, and, and then was Mario with the, with the Formula One stuff, and, and then A.J. Foyt did some sports car stuff. You're starting to see that crossover. Jensen Button, the former F1 champion, was also part of that, of that uh, yeah. race in Chicago. So, yeah, you know, if, they can, if NASCAR is going to do the model that we're seeing in Toronto that's been there since 86 with only three years, you know, dark, you know, NASCAR is just chiming into this idea like NASCAR does at Monaco and these other street races like Bahrain, where all of a sudden you're bringing these races to the streets of the city. There's a perfectly good one-and-a-half-mile oval track in Chicago, but they decided to run this thing on the streets. Yeah. And thinking, <laughs> we can, yeah, we can cash in on some of this popularity, and if, you're gonna, if that's going to happen, you're going to see some of these F1 guys say, you know what, maybe I can do that. You know, maybe the, the IndyCar guys, you know, guys like A.J. Yamadinger, who did some IndyCar stuff, can get in there and do some of that road racing. If they're going to vary 
the formats and vary the venues like they're doing right now, you're going to see some more of that crossover, and that's good to see because I love drivers that can drive a, a, a lot of different race cars in different disciplines. It's really Okay, got a limited amount of time left. Sure. Uh, obviously, we've seen F1 expand through the states in the last couple of years. Now, three races there, the one in Montreal. Could you see them coming to Toronto, or is that a saturation? Uh, I think, yeah, I think so. I, you know, I, yeah. I don't think there's much chance of that happening. I mean, you got you got Montreal there, and I mean, they, 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 there's always talk of the Indy even moving out to uh, Canadian Tire Motorsport Park where Ron Fellows owns it. Mm. Um, I, I, I just I just don't know whether F1 right now is even looking uh, at at trying to maybe move Another to one. Toronto or even yeah. a NASCAR street race. I don't I don't know whether that's going to happen. But you know the the, the trucks have run uh, on road courses and things like that. I think uh, with NASCAR going to Canadian Tire Motorsport Park, getting that reestablished again, I think is the number one yeah. right now. Yeah. All right, Eric Thomas with us, Raceline Radio Network here Sunday nights right here on CHML. And, of course, this weekend, Toronto Indy, and he'll be there with full colors. Uh, Eric, as always, thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. You too, lad. We'll talk to everybody Sunday night, 8 o'clock. A lot of chatter, and this was before uh, COVID and even before uh, life got so dang expensive. Um, and, and the whole debate over self-checkout versus having an attendant there that you can check your groceries with or what have you, uh, whatever type of store that you're in. Uh, now uh, we're hearing, the, and, and, you know, there's a lot of um, objection, I guess, to the self-checkout because people were obviously losing their jobs and lack of service, what have you. But post-pandemic and in an era where we're seeing incredibly rising costs and everything, including groceries, now shoplifting itself checkouts are leading some grocery stores to checking your receipts as you leave. We've heard about this in other uh, big box stores uh, and such. I always thought that the person was there. Uh, you know, you go in, there's like six of them there, and then there's always sort of an attendant there. I thought that was for people like me who, you know, get confused and, you know, hey, can you help me here? But are, are they checking? Is it about help, service, or security? Bruce Winder with us, retail analyst and author of Retail Before, During, and After COVID-19. Bruce, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, I'm doing well, Scott. Thanks for having me on. So is this how big a problem is this? Is this something that's always been there with the self-checkout or is, you know, just like theft with everything, we're seeing it go up in a in an economy that's going through the roof? Well, overall, uh, theft or what they call shrink in retail terms has ballooned up. You know, by some measures, it's up two to three hundred percent since before the pandemic. And um and I think a lot of that has to do with the economy we're in right now. It's just really tough for people to meet ends meet. But one of the catalysts that has helped enable the growth of shrink or, or uh, theft is self-checkouts. And uh, to your point earlier, it's something that was rolled out for the most part to save labor dollars for retailers. But now it's sort of backfired on them a bit. And it's one of the key areas that people are able to uh, steal from companies now. Will we see a reverse in trend here? Uh, does it depend on area, store, what have you? Well, you know what? There could be. I wouldn't say there's a reverse in trend, but I think you're going to see more people uh, thrown at the problem, so to speak. So I think retailers are going to have a little more staff watching what the people do. And it will depend on the area. It's very area specific. I mean, in the U.S., some retailers have actually closed down the whole store in some areas. Um, in addition, you know, one retailer, uh, Walgreens, I think it was, they, they created a store that was pretty much putting everything behind glass. So that's mm. another thing, you know, but th these aren't really consumer friendly solutions. So the key is for a retailer is to find a consumer friendly solution that doesn't penalize everyone for a few. 
We, again, as I mentioned uh, in the intro, you often see an, or you will see an attendant there uh, if you have trouble. Is that about helping you, helping speed it up and giving you service, or is that to check what you're doing as well? No, no, it's both. It, it, that person has dual roles. They're definitely there to help if there's a tech problem, but they're just as much there to watch to see mm. who's uh, maybe skimming the uh, system. And what about fallout? How do customers feel about this? Well, customers, you know, um, obviously, if you're if you're someone who steals, you're concerned for the obvious reasons. You might not be able to, but if you're not someone who steals, then you feel, um, you know, you feel bad about this. You feel like you're being treated like a criminal, right? Um, you know, you're they're looking at your receipt in some cases. They're, you know, so you're kind of being, you know, being treated like a criminal when you're not, and that's got a lot of people angry uh, on the consumer front right now. Would it be enough to change habits? Yeah, it would. Um, it might, you might change stores. You know, I know some people, um, there's been some discussion recently about uh, Loblaw, Canadian Tire, um, and some other retailers checking receipts. And I think, you know, for some people, it's enough for them to say, I'm not really shopping at the store anymore. I'm going to shop at a store that doesn't assume I'm a thief. And, you know, it can really hit people sometimes and really, um, really sort of insult them deeply. Is there a tech way around this? I mean, obviously, if you go through uh, an exit with something you haven't paid for, an alarm will go off. I mean, in this situation, it's often a switching of products. You're taking something more expensive and only flipping um, a, a a product of minor value, perhaps. Uh, but at the end of the day, is there something they cannot do at the door? Like, and then if an alarm goes off, they check your receipt. Yeah, there is a tech solution for this, um, and it really involves, um, there's a few names for it, but if you look at Amazon, they came out with a technology a few years ago called Amazon Go, where you pretty much, you know, you have an app and you activate the app when you come in the store and whatever you leave with through the doors, it automatically charges right. you for that. You don't have to right. scan. That's probably the, the best way, I think, um, you know, to, to get things done. Another was smart carts, you know, which is similar. Whatever you put in the cart, you're charged for automatically. So there, mm. there are some technology ways to get it done, but it does cost money and it is disruption and not everyone has an app, not everyone has a phone, and not everyone wants to do that. So it's not something you can flick a switch and sort of put it across Canada immediately. Shoplifting itself, checkouts leading to some grocery stores, checking your receipts as you leave. Bruce Winder with us, retail analyst and author of Retail Before, During, and After COVID-19. Bruce, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Yeah, you too, Scott. Take care. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Elton John, I guess we've known for a while. He's been uh, on his last tour and obviously interrupted by COVID as well. But uh, he performed what uh, said is going to be the final show uh, of the final tour of his career on Saturday night in Stockholm, Sweden. Uh, in, in a post said, what a journey this tour has been. And now we find ourselves at the end of it. Tonight is the final night. Eric Elper, music publicist and commentator with us now. Eric, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Everything is great. I, I'm sure Elton John feels a little bit more relieved and happier than I do, but it's all good. Was this a floating last night? I mean, did everybody know Stockholm was the, going to be the, the absolute last show? Or as this tour continues, has that sort of floated a bit? No, this is really going to be it. Um, you know, there's a level of experience when you are somebody like Elton John that you can only say that you are going to say goodbye once. 
And even though that this tour was supposed to wrap up back in 2021, I mean, it started in September 2018. So it was mm. always going to be three years, but he let everybody know. He let his family know, his husband, his two sons, the record label management booking agent, that this is going to be it. It doesn't rule out maybe a residency in Las Vegas or mm. one-off shows, but in terms of touring around the globe, yeah, we will never see the likes of him again. I mean, 330 concerts, grossed over $910 million, the first tour in music history to crack the $900 million mark. Um, Taylor Swift is going to demolish that and maybe even have the first billion dollar tour but for now i think if you uh, i think if you miss elton john on this tour and you had lots of opportunities but i think if you missed him you might have to travel somewhere else probably in 2024 but still committed to uh, making new music yeah, he's going to go back in the studio sometime next year. He still uh, loves making music and creating albums and making videos and especially doing duets with up and coming artists. He loves that idea that he is still able to crack through the Billboard Hot 100 and the UK charts mm. with his duets of with uh, kind of new and older artists. But um, yeah, this is uh, um, I mean, he just kind of said goodbye to the world in terms of touring, but it still won't stop him from recording and making music. How do you explain his longevity and what can be a very difficult business? <laughs> um, oh, wow. There are so many different, there's so many different eras of Elton John. Um, and there's so many yeah. different parts of Elton John that are just so astonishing for all the things that he did for the LGBTQIA community, raising over $650 million with the Elton John AIDS Foundation when nobody would be touching that um that era and that disease. <clears throat> also, with just the the sheer amount of fashion and eyewear and sexiness mm. and singer songwriter and the songs that he was able to create with Bernie Taupin, not even being in the same room as Bernie who wrote the lyrics to pretty much all of his hits, um, the ups, the downs, he just never stopped creating. And like that song says, he's still standing. Uh, what, what do you think is next? Do you think this is it? Do you think there's uh, another big hole oh, smokes? I can't believe he did this. Yeah, I think there's nothing in him that's going to wake up tomorrow and say, oh, my gosh, what have I done? Everybody yeah. call everybody back or at eight o'clock at night when he misses the crowd and he's like, where is everybody? Yeah. I don't think there's anything like that. He said on stage yesterday that, you know, he was not only lucky to play music, um, but that he deserves this break and that he doesn't regret it. And he wants to thank yeah. the band and the crew and everybody. So I think that this is just a long time coming for him because of COVID and because that kind of put the halt to this tour. Um, you know, he, he's missing a lot of things with his family and his family is so important to him that, you know, his sons didn't stop getting older and stopping whatever grade that they're yeah. in in school because yeah. of COVID. So I think that he's looking at it saying, I've got a lot of time to make up. So you you wouldn't be surprised of a residency. That seems to be the new thing for people at this stage. Yeah, I think he's going to take a look at at maybe next year for sure. I think that this is going to be the last that we'll hear about him for the next little bit. He might do yeah. a couple of interviews here and there about the new Elton John era that we're all going to be taking a look at. But I, I don't think that he's going to go back on his word uh, and start touring. Um, and if he does things like Las Vegas or he does, you know, 
two or three nights at Radio City Music Hall or even Madison Square Garden. I mean, he can fill out both in a matter of minutes. Um, but there'll be there'll be things that I think will happen probably next year. I think this year is kind of done. And also too, it's a really busy time out there when you're touring. There's a lot of artists that are not only doing their farewell tours, like Eagles have announced their final tour and that could be going for three years. Um, but you've got artists like Kiss and um, uh, and others that, you know, they're kind of done right now. So he doesn't really want to compete with those kind of farewell tours. He knows that he's had the spotlight for a very, very long time. Only got a few seconds left. Taylor Swift uh, not coming to Canada. The prime minister trying to get her to come here. What's this all about? Um, yeah, you know, I, I think the prime minister showed that he's a little bit human, which is always nice to see and pretty cute of him to to tweet at Taylor Swift. And he also is very well aware of the $4.3 billion in secondary economy that a tour like this is generating. All the hotels, food, alcohol, parking, restaurants, all those people are making money whenever Taylor Swift comes to town. And, you know, why wouldn't Canada want a part of that? But, you know, I think maybe fall, winter 2024. I don't think the prime minister is going to have much sway in this. All right, Eric Alper with us, music publicist and commentator, Elton John, wrapping it up. Uh, Eric, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you so much. We'll talk soon. We have talked, and most recently, with uh, Atif Kabirzi from uh, McMaster about Canadian liquid natural gas, the climate situation, the climate crisis, the world energy crisis, and such. And we're going to continue on uh, this discussion with him. How does Canada's LNG, liquid natural gas strategy, impact our allies? And what happens as more people take notice of this? Uh, I'm going to refer to an article by the Globe and Mail. And this is written by Greg Ebel, who is the president and CEO. CEO of Enbridge. So keep that in mind, okay, because this is coming from the gas company. Uh, when allies seek Canada's natural gas, we say, sorry, that has global consequences. Uh, and referring to uh, Canada's lack of development in this area and uh, asks from Europe and Japan and, and such to to produce more to get them off of coal. We talked uh, with with uh, uh, Atif Kabirzi uh, a while ago in regard to Norway, uh, spending, uh, investing, I think it was about $18 billion into uh, natural gas and such to get them through uh, their transitionary period. So we're going to bring him back and continue this discussion and, and ask if we're missing an opportunity. Are we on the right track here? Atif Kabirzi with us, Professor Emeritus Economics, McBaster University, former undersecretary. Secretary with the United Nations and with us now. Atif, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm well. Thank you so, Atif, let me, let, me start, let me start with this question, Atif. Are, are we on the right strategy? Is Canada doing the right thing? Um, should we be constantly, and we're, we're continuing the discussion, I know we had earlier, but should we be continuing to throttle back our industry, or should we be helping the other 98% of the world who are trying to bridge this gap? Do we have the right strategy here in Canada? Because it seems it's not jiving with the rest of the world. Well, you see, uh, we're coming a bit too late in the sense that uh, by the time we have the infrastructure to deliver our liquefied natural gas from St. John Terminal and other places, uh, the world may really be going off oil and gas, uh, particularly Europe. And as we talked a week or so before, Norway is expanding very heavily. And uh, the uh, 
Europeans are trying to get off natural gas. I mean, uh, Denmark is uh, setting a date of 2030 when they will be totally uh, win, have weaned their economy of natural gas. So to some extent, with our ability, with our capacity, we have lots of reserves. Uh, we're not really on time, so to speak. And by the time we come and we start uh, to be in a position to deliver our exports, uh, the Europeans uh, may have completely weaned out their economy. And they're not doing to wean it out from us. They're trying to wean it from Russians. Russians Atif, to explain. Yes, Atif, that being said, it, it certainly isn't slowing down the Norways and the what have you. And, and with all due respect, we've been saying this for years. Um, but if we can't get the world off of coal, how can we get them off of everything? So, uh, again, I mean, you can keep hunting it down the road and saying, well, we should have been done it, doing it 20 years ago. But when we tried to do this 20 years ago, the same activists were saying the same thing. So at the end of the day, it, you know, we're not really we don't really seem to be helping those that need our help. And we don't seem to really be helping by throttling back what we're doing because we only produce 1.5% of the world's global uh, greenhouse emissions, gases. So at the end of the day, it seems we're trying to look good, but we're not really helping anybody, including the planet. Yeah, but then, yeah, but at the end of the day, we don't want to fry this planet. We have to yeah. move of fossil fuel, and we have to basically take into account that whatever emissions and whatever we're contributing or what the world is contributing is going to uh, ultimately uh, thwart any attempt on our part to keep the temperature rise less than 1.5 or But again, those heavy-duty producers, Atif, they're still drilling coal mines. They're still going, like, we're stopping producing natural gas, but they're still making coal mines. So... Again, that's great for us on, on this side of the world that believe that way and don't really pollute a lot anyway. But there's an awful lot of big industry or industrial cities. You're talking to Denmark and such. I mean, that's not necessarily an industrial center that are still heavily relying on coal. Uh, and again, uh, as a transitionary fuel, we don't seem to be helping when those around us are asking for it. Even in the U.S., We've seen their emissions go drastically down by getting off coal. And again, we, we don't seem to have any, any desire to, uh, uh, to help anyone other than just look good, even though we buy stuff from uh, a lot dirtier countries. It, it just seems odd. I'm, 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 I'm wondering as if our strat, I'm wondering if our strategy is working where scare the bejeevers out of people, tell everybody the planet's burning up. Of course it is. And then try to get everybody to shut off when there isn't a valuable alternative, alternative available. And the other question, Atif, is, you know, we keep hearing about EVs and, and, and how they're going to help and such. And then, of course, developing the batteries and the mineral, uh, uh, mines here, so we're not buying these from extremely polluting countries, yet w we seem to be hearing pushback when it comes to developing the Ring of Fire. Do you see? Do you ever see that development happening, where we're building a road up there to develop those? Oh, the, the, no, uh, easy choices. I mean, uh, whether we like it or not, we really have yeah. the following choice. Either we deal with our situation with disaster, or we do it with some foresight and some rational way. If we keep going the way we are, business as usual, we are going to suffer measurably from the 
extreme weather conditions and all the negative consequences of uh, global warming and climate change. The issue here is why don't we go and start developing alternatives? So why don't we invest in... But haven't we been doing that, Atif, for like, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm over 60 years old. I remember this chatter 40 years ago. And Germany and, and, and you know, the Scandinavian countries were on the cutting edge of all of this decades and decades ago. So it's not as if we're just starting this, Atif. We've been at this for a, for a while now. Yeah, but we're not doing enough, I suppose. And the fact that we have all the fires, we have all the consequences, it's, it's no longer something theoretical or something that we expect. It's with us. It's here. We're already breathing the incredibly dirty and smoky air, and that's not good for our health or our kids. We need to take this issue of climate change and its consequences seriously, and there is a one direct connection between fossil fuel and this global warming and climate change. And uh, yes, I would love and I agree with you that let's get out of coal totally, but we have to also get off oil and gas because these are. Is it impossible to get off one? Was it? Is it impossible to get off one and not the other? Like again, I'll go back to my question. You want everybody off of fossil fuel? That's where we all know we need to go. Yet we can't tackle coal, which is the biggest polluter. So how can we, you know, just click our fingers and and. And, and make the, the research and development happen when, uh, with all forms of fossil fuel, and yet we can't even get the world off of coal. Yeah, but with due respect, you know, this argument is not very convincing in the sense that we have failed to get off coal, therefore we should do anything to get off it and the other... Thing. No, that's not what I'm saying, Atif. I'm saying as a, as a transitionary fuel to get from one to the other. Uh, that, that's what I'm saying. But we're plumb out of time here. I appreciate the discussion. Atif Kabursi with us, Professor Emeritus Economics, McMaster University, former Undersecretary to the United Nations. We all agree we got to get off. What the problem is, we don't agree on the solution. A quick break here. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We remember during the height of the global pandemic, it exposed... Uh, a lot of weak links in our much uh, highly coveted and bragged about healthcare system that uh, nobody realized just how bad it was. And uh, when pushed into a global pandemic, uh, the Canadian healthcare system snapped. And uh, obviously, it exposed a lot of weaknesses. During this time, we all said we were going to fix this. We're going to make sure that uh, it doesn't happen again. The premiers get together, uh, ask for more money. They get a, a portion of that money. The negotiations start, blah, 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 blah. Here we are like a week or sorry, a year later, and the premiers are meeting in Winnipeg while officials from several provinces say affordability is their top priority. Health care still on the docket. Uh, and, and obviously, with the money that has come, what do you do with it moving forward to fix the Canadian healthcare system, which we've been feeling the pinch from east to west, north to south? Let's bring in Catherine Dorian, uh, or sorry, Dornian, a digital broadcast journalist with Global News in Winnipeg, and here now. Catherine, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hi, Scott. I'm well. How about you? So far, so good. So a year ago, it was all about healthcare, healthcare, healthcare. Is that still the top priority here? 
Uh, we are expecting it to be a major priority at the meeting. Uh, the meetings this week, Scott, uh, we're expecting them to uh, be discussing how they're going to use that money that they've accepted from the federal government in the best way uh, and how to make uh, the systems better uh, with that money and uh, how they're going to report that to the federal government. Is this still a uh, top priority? Is it still in the news? Is it still front and center? I mean, obviously, with uh, whether it's homelessness or affordability or such, um, you know, the pandemic's kind of bumped off of our radar. Is this still is this still a, a heavy issue with all provinces? Uh, it's certainly a heavy issue here in uh, Manitoba, Scott, um, and as well, uh, uh, BC Premier David Eby uh, saying today that it was a big uh, priority for him as well. I understand the uh, the BC healthcare system is in need uh, of some help there. Um, so uh, we're expecting a lot of discussions, as I said, on healthcare, uh, but also on the docket for this week, affordability, housing. Uh, Premier Doug Ford suggesting infrastructure is one of his major priorities. Uh, indigenous reconciliation is on the table. Uh, a lot of things are going to be uh, being discussed this week. Uh, and one more question on healthcare, Catherine. And uh, obviously now they have got deals in place or they have a rough idea, whether it's what they wanted or, or not, of how much they have. Is now the big issue how to do deal uh, or how to spend it, what to do with it? And, and, and is it about sharing information from province to province to province? Or is this each one takes the cash, goes back to their uh, province and does with what they wish? I get the sense that um, many premiers want to have a bit more coordination among each other to better share that money and also better share uh, how they um, access uh, their health professionals. Of course, many uh, provinces are getting health professionals from other countries and other provinces. So uh, they don't want to not step on their toes as they do that uh, and not drive up costs as they do that. Um, so uh, obviously, every province is going to uh, do this a little bit differently. But I get the sense that they're going to be uh, wanting some coordination there to make the system better uh, in all, all provinces. Obviously, affordability, an issue post-pandemic, costs going up, uh, groceries, what have you. Uh, what can the provinces do uh, and, and what can they learn from each other uh, during, this, uh, during this issue or with this issue, rather? And is somebody from the federal government there to kind of receive all of this in any way? Well, uh, no representatives from the federal government were here today. Uh, we'll, of course, keep updated on whether uh, they uh, show up for the next couple of uh, days. But uh, as, as I understand it, it's going to be aligning um, the priorities from the different provinces to see how they can uh, combat affordability uh, and the housing crisis. Um, Premier Ford uh, mentioned the housing crisis and several other premiers did as well as they were coming in today uh, as a major priority for them and how they can uh, keep costs down for uh, other for everyone across the country uh, in terms of housing and in terms of, of course, affordability, things like groceries, all those things that have been hit by inflation, Scott, those are all going to be on the table as well. Any chance of taxes, carbon taxes, that sort of thing? Uh, the Atlantic premiers uh, were seem to be very interested in discussing more about the carbon tax uh, and the fuel affordability measures. They all seem to be aligned in that they want to petition the federal government for a bit of a break. They say it's uh, unfairly targets Atlantic Canada, who has different regulations when it comes to gas prices, um, and they want uh, some kind of rebate for that in Atlantic Canada specifically. So we'll be following that story as well. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure this is, uh, well, we're seeing it a situation right across the country, certainly in this province, in big cities and in smaller towns. This is related to what you're talking about uh, with affordability and such, and that's tent encampments. Any, any chatter whether that's going to be a part of this discussion at all? What do we do with the unhoused? 
Um, Scott, that didn't come up uh, this morning when we were uh, watching the premiers go into the meeting. I'm sure it will be on the table uh, along with the housing discussions. Uh, housing is, of course, a major issue in all provinces right now. Uh, and with that comes uh, the unhoused. So how can we get more people into housing? How can we make housing more accessible for the people who most need it? Uh, I have to imagine that's going to be on the table, especially in places where the housing crisis is the worst and the least accessible to people. Catherine Dornian with us, digital broadcast journalist with Global News in Winnipeg, covering the premiers there, meeting for the next three days uh, on provincial issues and coordination. Catherine, so, uh, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks for having me, Scott. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Article in the National Post today, pro-Beijing groups claim credit for helping Olivia Chow win Toronto mayoralty. Uh, mayoralty. Uh, she says she was unaware two prominent community groups aligned with the Chinese government and Communist Party supplied numerous volunteers to uh, to the effort, a letter from one of the group claims to talk more about all of this. Does it matter? Charles Burton, senior fellow with the Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the McDonald Laurier Institute and here now. Charles, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am, Scott. It's good to hear from you. What do you make of this? I remember uh, there was a uh, a mayor in Vancouver that these allegations came up. He said it was racist and such. How do we interpret this? How do What are we supposed to think here? Well, I mean, we do know that that Olivia Chow, a couple of weeks before the election, did go to one of these, um, you know, Chinese embassy associated uh, Chinese associations where she gave a speech and there are photographs of her receiving a large vase and as a, as a thank you. Uh, she says that she didn't attend the whole meeting. She just went there at the end. I, you know, she doesn't have a record of being pro-China. She's originally from Hong Kong. She's been very supportive of the Hong Kong democracy movement and of dissidents who, um, uh, you know, oppose the Chinese uh, communist violation of the um, of the Sino-British Joint Declaration that says that the communists ought to lay, lay off Hong Kong for 50 years. You know, she's hosted Emily Lau, a very famous uh, Chinese um, prominent democracy um, member of parliament and journalist to Canada. And she, you know, she has a record of attending um, June 4th um, commemorations over the Tiananmen massacre of 1989 in Beijing. So, you know, she's clearly, from uh, the public perception, someone who is not someone that is likely to support the purposes of the Chinese Communist Party in Canada. But she did go to that meeting and, you know, I guess pro-Beijing people also vote. And I suppose you try and find all the constituencies you can. I can't, on the face of it, think what, as mayor of Toronto, she could be doing to further Chinese government purposes in Canada. But, you know, clearly they want to claim that they supported her. Therefore, maybe the the, the message is you better give us something back. Um I, you know, hmm. but, but uh, Olivia doesn't seem to be buying that. Uh, would anybody of Chinese ethnicity be involved in this? Would, yeah, I mean, it, how, where do you draw the line here? Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, I, there is the idea that if it had been a non-ethnic Chinese mayoral yeah. candidate who had met with this 
grow Beijing Group, the, you know, this association from Fuqing on their website admits that they are under the guidance of the Chinese Communist Party's United Front Work Department and, you know, and serve Chinese purposes. So, you know, there's no there's no doubt about who you're dealing with when you when you meet with these people. They're quite upfront about it. But, um, you know, maybe because she's ethnic Chinese, there seems to be some notion that she would be disloyal to Canada. Um, you know, but there, Charles, is there any reason to believe is there any reason to believe that, Charles? I don't think so. I mean, she's been in Canada. She came from Hong Kong. Her family left Hong Kong because of uh, concern about the political situation there, made considerable um, loss of status in Canada to make it here. She's obviously made a great success. She's served as a member of parliament and, you know, served served our democracy well. So the idea that she would be some sort of sleeper agent for the communists doesn't seem very likely. But, you know, people just, just make these assumptions that anyone who looks like that is has um, divided loyalties. But I, in this case, I, I really don't see it, particularly as she's from Hong Kong and has really no connection right. to mainland China whatsoever that I'm aware of. Is this the Chinese Communist Party trying to take credit for everything and further be divisive? I think by linking her to something she's probably head. not. You know, yeah. they want to claim, oh, yes, look, we managed to get our candidate as mayor of Toronto. Yeah. And certainly, you know, if they said that they supported her campaign with whatever licking envelopes or banging. Um, you know, posters into the ground. That that may be true, but there were other candidates there uh, who seemed to be more oriented towards the mainland um, in, in that election. They had 102 candidates after all. Uh, so, you know, they may have helped her, but I don't think they're going to be getting much back for it. I, I, just, I just can't imagine the kind of scrutiny that's on her would allow yeah. her to be doing anything that would be seen as favoring the interests of a foreign power. Does she need to address this? Oh, yes, I think so. I, I would certainly like her to address it. I I wish she'd spoken out more firmly when the revelations about her meeting with this association and receiving the gift came out. I, I think it would be uh, significant for her to state clearly that, that uh, you know, she supports democracy and doesn't support uh, the agenda of the Chinese Communist Party in Canada. And I, I hope she'll do that. Charles Burton with us, Senior Fellow with the Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute. Groups uh, with interests in Beijing and ties to the Communist Chinese Communist Party uh, trying to take credit for the election of Olivia Chow. Charles, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Great to speak with you. Take care. You may have heard this, but there is a strike going on on the West Coast. Uh, the B.C. port workers are out, and it is sending ripples across the Canadian economy as everyone from Saskatchewan potash exporters to Ontario's importers of industrial parts are feeling the walkout, feeling the impact uh, as it's in its 10th day. Let's bring in Dr. Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, and here now. Ian, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm doing very well. Thanks very much. We have talked at length about other strikes like this, Ian. Uh, you brought up uh, uh, CN rail strikes and such. It yep. lasts so long, and then uh, they're legislated back to work. What do you see happening here? Uh, notwithstanding what Labor Minister Sh uh, Seamus O'Regan uh, states, um, you know, we want to let the process work its way through. Um, I, I think they will be legislated back to work if they don't come to a resolution very quickly. I'm saying that not just because I'm asserting that out of thin air. In 2015, I did an article 
a research article that was published in a, in an academic journal. It was a very practical article. And uh, I wrote the article because started to do the research because uh, Prime Minister Harper had just legislated striking postal workers back to work. And there are all kinds of nonsense was being written in the mainstream media um, about this was unprecedented and, you know, it was wrong and it was a violation. It was bringing labor relations onto an end, blah, blah, blah. And I'm not here to defend Harper. I was just listening to all this utter nonsense because I'm old enough to remember many, many times strikers being legislated back to work federally by the federal government of Canada, starting with striking postal workers in the 70s when they were going on yeah. strike regularly. Yeah. So I knew it was a lot of work. I went to the parliamentary uh, library with wonderful people, bunch of people and said, look, I don't have the time to go look up all these back to work bills. Can you do it? And they were very kind and very generous because they were not getting paid by me or any at all. And they looked up every bill from 1950, that's 1950, to 2014. And contrary to all the nonsense that was said, unprecedented, never happened before, the Parliament of Canada legislated back striking workers 35 times from 1950 to 2014. Hmm. Liberal governments did it. Conservative governments did it. So I looked at the data and they gave me the date of first reading, second reading, third reading, the name of the bill, etc. And 34 out of 35 times legislated back to work from 1950 to 2014, these striking workers were in the overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly in the transportation communication sector, 34 to 35 mm -hmm. times. Port of Montreal, Port of Vancouver, Pearson Airport, Canadian National Railroad, Canadian Pacific Railroad, Air Canada, Canada Post. So contrary to these people actually saying this on national television, that this was unprecedented of Harper, he was merely number 35. Hmm. Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau was the master legislator at legislating striking workers back to work 14 times out of 35, not because he was a bad person, but because he was in power longer from 1968 to 1984. So he had more opportunities because there were more strikes in that period. But what I argued in the article was that notwithstanding people have the right to strike, and I didn't deny that at all. I said successive parliaments over, what's that? That's over uh, two-thirds of a century in our country have said, uh-uh, no, no. If you are on strike and it affects the greater good, and because we're such a huge country, I argued, second largest in the world, utterly dependent on transportation to ship our goods and our services. And transportation does not just mean ports. It means railroads. It means airlines. It means post office in those days. And I said, what the parliament has said, and by the way, they didn't wait three months. Often these people were sent back to work within five days of going on strike. Parliament reacted very, very, very quickly. It didn't matter if it was a liberal government or a conservative government. Diefenbaker did it. Pearson did it. Trudeau did it. Harper did it. Gretchen did it. It didn't matter. And so I concluded that it was such of great national importance to everybody in the country, the greater good, that although these workers in the transportation communication sector had the legal right to strike, de facto, in reality, the parliament over two thirds of a century has said, you go on strike and you're going to disrupt the economy. We're going to legislate you back to work. We will not allow you to shut down railroads or bridges or ports or airlines or railroads or, at all. And so I think they will get legislated back to work if they don't settle at the bargaining table. 
So is this just a matter of days then before we see something like this happen, or at least the negotiations get a lot harder? Are, are, are the, the BC port workers in step with under in similar industries? Um, I, I, you've asked an excellent question. You really have. And I wished I had had looked it up because I never thought to look it up to see what was the average time and the longest time between the time they went on strike to the time they were legislated back to work. So I'm going to rely on my faulty memory because I'm not young anymore. But if I recall, the longest any one of these unions that were in the transportation sector were on strike before they got legislated back to work was two weeks. And I'm relying on my memory. I'd have to go look at my mm. data again because there were 35 different bills over 65, 70 years. And, you know, some got legislated back to work after the third day of the strike, some were seventh day of the strike. But if I recall, it was the maximum they were allowed to be on strike was like two weeks. They did not let them go on strike in this sector for two months, three months, that sort of thing. Now, most strikes don't go on for that long. But the point is, Parliament acted with a remarkable speed, and there was no pattern in the data about the time of the year. Parliament got called back in the summer. When the Parliament was in recess, they legislated them back to work in the winter, the spring, the fall. There was no pattern in the data in terms of the calendar cycle. And But with the pattern in the data was if you're in transportation and communications, and they were mostly transportation, by the way, workers on strike, as I said, railroads, ports, airports, Pearson Airport then you were sent back to work because the impact, I mean, $700 million a day is being disrupted. We're talking billions and it affects everybody. It affects everybody in the country. It affects the whole supply chain. If we have learned anything from the pandemic in mm. the last four years, it's don't screw up the supply chain because it's enormously disruptive to everybody and the economy and society. And the supply chain is, is transportation. You move stuff through the transportation infrastructure. So when it goes on strike, it blows up everything, as we have sadly learned during and, and after the pandemic. Uh, over and above this, uh, where the BC port workers are, what does this say about where we are in a post-COVID-19 world? Obviously, costs are rising. Workers want more money. Everyone wants more yeah. money. Um, I, I think what it means, um, and I know we're not here to talk about interest rates, but I think it's inevitable that they will increase rates because the governor of the bank Canada has realized he's got to get that inflation rate down really quick, really fast. He doesn't have the luxury of two years. He's got to get it down to, and he's promised to get it down to 2%. Let's be clear. He has very, very clearly promised that. And so I think they've got to get it down really quickly before we get a huge number of strikes. And, you know, this is this is deja vu all over again for me, because I remember in 75, 76, 77, 78, it seemed like everybody was going on strike because the inflation was going up so rapidly. And so people were going on saying, hey, I got to get compensated because the inflation was moving up so fast. And hmm. so the you can't just legislate everybody back to work. And so you've got to, that's why it's so critical that he, the Bank of Canada, get the inflation back down to two, which is why I think they're going to put the rate up again on Wednesday. And they're they're going to keep putting it up until they can see that thing bend inflation, bending down back down to 2% and getting that genie in the bottle, because that will bring the strikes to an end across the country. You won't have significant numbers of strikes if they can quickly, quickly get the, the inflation back down to 2%. Dr. Ian Lee with us, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, talking about the BC Port Workers Strike, which is in its 10th day. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thanks very much. 
Scott Radley is with us, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is here now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am well. Hey, how was your vacation? It was very good. It was very quiet. <laughs> you, I, and, you I know, this, and you can. I said this sorry, on the air last week. You have amazing abilities to pick the right weeks. It is always lovely when you go on vacation. Oh, as far as the weather, yeah. Well, that's, you know, if you take oh, all the time too. off you can, then. <laughs> Thank you for that. All right. But you know what? Here's something that you can relate to, because we're both roughly the same age, except I started, we started our family later in life, right? Um, and, and your kids, your kids are how old now? 28, 25. There you go. All right. So uh, we started this vacation, and then we went up to the cottage, and it's, you know, a week off. And, you know, it's the family, me and the two, and the wife, and the two kids. And it, like the first weekend, the long weekend, it was like, <laughs> you know, lots of action, lots of, you know, going on because there's like all these activities, kids everywhere. Uh-huh. And then they left, they left after the Monday because they had to come home because they got jobs and other uh, commitments and stuff because they're getting older now. <laughs> they're 16 and 21. So, uh, we were at the cottage for like the last part of the vacation just by ourselves. Uh-huh. And it was very, uh, it was nice. It was great, but it, it wasn't the typical family vacation. And you must remember when all of a sudden the kids didn't go on vacation anymore with you. Oh, you know what? Or when they left early. Well, that's, see, that's more the thing right now is because they still are. We're, we're, we're going up to a cottage and they're coming with us, but they've got to work. And so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Scott, since the, well, for years now, one of the things I, I am not a fisherman, uh, in terms of knowing what I'm doing. I could not find a weed line and properly troll it without getting snagged hopelessly or any of those things. I don't know properly what lures to use, but up at the cottage, I am the most enthusiastic fisherman because for (laughs) several hours a day, I'm out in the water by 5 a.m. every day. I don't even sleep in because it is, your phone is with you, but only to take a picture to prove if you actually catch something decent. But I don't have the phone going. There's nobody around. It is All you're hearing is from the line and the water hitting the boat. It is perfect. It is perfect. And even if I don't catch anything, which, which is most of the time, uh, it's, it's like, okay, you know what? I could, I could get used to this. I could get, and then of course, after a week, you're like, okay, that's all the fishing I need to do. Yeah, that's it for another year. I'm yep. done. Have you seen that commercial on TV where the father and son are out in the boat? I think it's for an eyeglass place. And, uh, all of a sudden the, you know, the, the father makes a, you know, he, he shoots out a cast and it hits the water and it, it's his car keys going into the lake. And then the son goes, dad, have you seen the boat keys? No, I'm sure they're around there somewhere, son. And, you know, it's- if, That's me and my son, actually. No. So my my I, my son will come out fishing with me regularly. He's not. He doesn't get up at five. He's not stupid like me. But he'll come out, and what inevitably invariably happens, Scott, is that I'll be out there probably a total of I don't know how many hours in the week, five, ten times more than he is. He will always catch the bigger fish, always, every single wow. year. Yeah. And yeah. I wrote about this one year because we had years ago. Uh, we go up to the Quarthas and great fishing up there. And we had decided, he had really wanted to catch a muskie. Never caught a muskie. I had caught one by accident once. Um, mm-hmm. I wouldn't claim any skill. In at doing the grocery it. store? No, I caught it and I didn't uh. even know what I'd hooked. And I, I actually destroyed a lure. It's now in a shadow box in my basement, all torn to shreds because it was like, that was so cool. But he, and we went out there and we finally, it was getting dark and we tried everything and we said, okay, 10 more casts and then we got to go. I give up. And on like s- number six or seven or 
or eight or something, his rod just went pewing, went straight down, and he pulls out a 45-inch muskie out of the water. Oh, my God. And I'm like, really? Like, I'm out here all the time. <laughs> And you're on like hour number five of your weekend really? of fishing and you pull really? up the, and I got, I got photo, photographic proof. I'm not yeah, that guy. Yeah. And I don't do the thing where I hold the fish as far out from my body as I can to make it yeah, look bigger. Yeah. Um, and it was like, really? You, you, you go out for five hours or whatever it is over the week and you catch the 45 inch musky. Give me a break. However, you know what? You know I, what? And, and you know what my son does now? He's like, I'm, you know, casting or whatever. And he's, cause he's out there all the time. So he's way out there more. He's out there way more than I am. Right, right. But you know what he'll do? He takes a GoPro and he puts it on the edge Smart. of his rod and he casts it in and he just takes all these pictures of the lake, which is very bizarre. And he goes, watch this, dad. And then you see three small fish swim by, as you were saying. And he goes, those are musky, three of them. And like they could fit in your aquarium. They're like maybe two inches long. <laughs> He goes, there's three right there, you know, blah, 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 blah. So it's amazing, you know, like we're, uh, you know, he's got, he's got a little fish finder thing. It's like, well, I think you got too much technology here. I mean, uh, you're waving at the fish before you catch them. It's not right. I'll tell you a funny story. Well, not funny. I'll tell you a story from last year, though. I know you got to run here, but uh, we go to this place where there are a number of cottages. And the, the day before we were leaving, this other family, we don't know them. I've never seen them before. They were coming up to one of the other cottages. And dad was work dad. The, the kids are running, or there's three kids, and dad is sitting on the dock on his phone the entire yeah. time. And I'm looking, uh -oh. and I'm casting off the dock at this point just for fun, and I hook one. And then one of the kids is nearby and said, hey, have you ever caught a fish before? And the kid's like, no. And I'm like, no, nah, I, I kind of bet that's the case, because dad is just sitting on his phone. No, so you I gave give, him the rod. I give him the rod, so he reels <laughs> it in. Well, now the other two kids want to catch a fish. So now the pressure's on. So now I'm casting, and thankfully, I caught, and each of them, I caught one, like I hooked one, and then each of them got to bring it in. And afterwards, dad doesn't even get off the phone. He, goes, he thanked me, but he didn't even get off the phone. It was like, okay, maybe your kids wouldn't be this excited if you'd go to the cottage and just put the phone down for five minutes. Anyway. Ain't that the truth? There you go. All right, Scott Radley Show coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read to me in your Hamilton Spectator. Thank you, Scott. Have a great show. Thanks, Scott. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. Always appreciate it. And we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, for the last word. This one via email from Mr. Lowe. Now that our PM is at the NATO summit, I hope he takes out his checkbook and cuts a check for, to NATO for our 2% contribution for defense spending. Perhaps he can even ask Taylor Swift for a contribution. Mr. Lowe, keep right except to pass. 